0: Welcome to NTD News Today, I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The nation's top health agency confirms that there are codes to track people who are unvaccinated for COVID-19 and health organizations may be actively using the codes. Mexico's president calls the recent charges against former U.S. President Trump political. He's among the few world leaders to weigh in on this issue. A trial about an international campaign finance conspiracy is packed with artists. Actor Leonardo DiCaprio testified in the case of an American rapper who's defending himself against accusations of illegal lobbying. A library offers a paid internship program, but there's a catch. It's only open to black applicants. A rights group cried foul and sends a cease and desist letter. The nation's top public health agency confirms that medical codes that show COVID 19 vaccination status are used to track people. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says it does not have access to the data, but that healthcare systems do. The CDC said the codes were created to allow healthcare providers to track within their practices. The CDC proposed the codes in 2021. One code is for being unvaccinated for COVID 19, another is for being partially vaccinated. The CDC said it does not track this information. However, a health insurance provider said the codes would help with outreach to provide vaccine information. The World Health Organization holds the copyright for the codes but has allowed the U.S. government to adopt usage. The CDC has not answered questions from members of Congress concerned about privacy issues and surveillance of personal health decisions. Here's a crazy story. The FBI accidentally detained an innocent person in a training drill gone wrong. The Defense Department made the error during a training exercise at a Boston hotel. Agents reportedly entered the wrong room on the 15th floor of the Revere Hotel late at night, waking up an airline pilot who wasn't involved in the drill. Local media WBZ reported that the unsuspecting man was handcuffed and interrogated for 45 minutes, Then, authorities finally realized the mistake. The Boston police responded to the scene and confirmed it was a training exercise mistake. The Defense Department apologized. Mike Burns of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command said it was unfortunate. Delta Airlines also responded. It said the company is looking into the incident and is committed to the safety of its people. Mexico's president spoke out yesterday against the indictment of former President Donald Trump. He said the charges were brought for political reasons during an election campaign. Here's more.
1: The supposedly legal issues should not be used for electoral or political purposes. That's why I don't agree with what they are doing to ex-President Trump.
2: Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador said he didn't know if Trump was guilty, and that it wasn't his place to comment but he called the charges against Trump a smear campaign, adding that it's for the people to decide. He is being exposed to a discredit campaign under the Mexican motto that when slander doesn't stain, it smudges. Lopez Obrador has maintained a rapport with Trump, despite the former U.S. president's regular criticism of Mexico and illegal immigration. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban also addressed Trump on Twitter, telling him to keep on fighting. Meanwhile, El Salvador's President Nayib Bukele slammed the historic indictment. He tweeted, Just imagine if this happened in any other country, where a government arrested the main opposition candidate. The United States' ability to use democracy as foreign policy is gone. Most other world leaders have remained silent about the issue, including the White House and the Kremlin.
0: Judge Juan Machan, who's overseeing Trump's criminal case in New York, donated to Democrats in 2020. The total isn't much, just $35, including a $15 contribution to the campaign of President Biden. Although small, the donations still raise questions. New York, like most U.S. jurisdictions, prohibits judges from donating or fundraising for a political organization or candidate. Trump's lawyers haven't yet weighed in, but political allies say the judge should remove himself from the case in light of the donations. And Stormy Daniels is speaking out about the case. In an interview with Piers Morgan, Daniels was recently ordered to pay Trump's attorneys just over $120,000 in legal fees. She says the former president shouldn't serve jail time if he's convicted in her case. But Daniels went on to say that she feels Trump should face jail time if he's found guilty of something else. She also says she would testify if the case goes to trial. Since the case centers on how Trump's payments were labeled, it's unclear how her testimony would be needed. Prosecutors say an Asian financier planned to influence U.S. elections, and the Chinese regime allegedly tried to influence certain government decisions. An American rapper seems to be the key figure in the scheme. Actor Leonardo DiCaprio testified at the musician's trial this week. Here's the
1: story. Praz Michel is a founding member of the 1990s hip-hop group The Fugees. He's currently on trial for an alleged campaign finance conspiracy. Federal prosecutors say Michel was enmeshed in political conspiracies involving millions of dollars in foreign money under two different U.S. presidents. He's accused of funneling money from a fugitive Malaysian financier through straw donors to former President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. That Malaysian financier is named Joe Lowe. Actor Leonardo DiCaprio testified at Michelle's trial this week, saying Lowe planned on giving a significant donation to the Democratic Party that was somewhere to the tune of 20 to 30 million. DiCaprio says he then replied, wow, that's a lot of money. Prosecutors say Michelle received $21 million from Lowe. The DOJ says Lowe and Michelle started the conspiracy to gain access to and influence Obama. U.S. law makes it illegal for foreigners to donate directly or indirectly to U.S. campaigns. Michelle allegedly attempted to conceal the funding. The musician has denied the allegations. Michelle is also accused of lobbying the Trump administration for the Chinese Communist Party. The party's goal was allegedly for the U.S. to send Chinese dissident Guo Wangui back to China. Just three weeks ago, U.S. prosecutors arrested Guo. They're accusing him of orchestrating a scheme to defraud more than a billion dollars from his online followers. Michelle's lawyers have previously said he's innocent and extremely disappointed in the charges. The defense decided to wait to give its opening statement in the trial that's expected to last weeks.
0: Next, we take a look at the banking crisis in the U.S. I wanted to learn more about whether or not there is a credit crunch and how Americans can keep safe financially amid all this. Earlier, I spoke with an economist. Have a listen. Joining us now is Vance Ginn, the president of Ginn Economic Consulting and senior fellow at Young Americans for Liberty. Thank you for making the time today, Vance.
3: It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: The CEO of J.P. Morgan said the U.S. banking crisis is not over and that it will linger for years and that America is moving into a vicious cycle. Do you agree with this? And how do you see this happening here? I mean, can it be fixed?
3: You know, I I think Jamie Dimon is on us something here. Uh, We saw a number of years of very low interest rates, a lot of liquidity that was put into the marketplace by the Federal Reserve, a lot of excess spending by Congress increasing the national debt to over $31 trillion. Uh, That puts a lot of... Uh, Treasury securities debt into the marketplace, the Fed bought increasing supply of liquidity into the marketplace, and that went into a lot of banks, and those banks were taking riskier and riskier investments to get a higher rate of return. And as you take those riskier investments, what it does is it creates what's a quote-unquote boom period, but you're going to have a bust. And so we've got to understand the boom period before we understand the bust. And so I think as a lot of this clears out of the marketplace, a lot of these banks will probably will see more bank failures, as we saw Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and some others. Um, I think we'll see more of that. And so unfortunately, um, there probably will be a prolonged period of economic slow, slow growth, um, but also even a recessionary period that will be pretty deep and hit a lot of Americans pretty hard, given we'll have higher inflation and fewer jobs in the marketplace.
0: Yes, there's an action-reaction going on here. Now, over $2 billion were withdrawn from U.S. domestic banks in the two weeks after SVB's collapse. Can you tell us about the scale of this compared to total deposits and the meaning there and what it means for lending, especially small businesses amid fears of a credit crunch?
3: Well, you know, that part was just a pretty small portion of the trillions of dollars that are in the overall banking sector, Uh, but what it does indicate to me is that there is some fear, there's this risk um, tolerance of maybe they don't want to take as much risk of putting money in banks. And so people are saying, you know what, let me take my deposits out. Put them elsewhere, and you know we have the Treasury, the Fed, and the FDIC kind of working together to backstop, really support a lot of those deposits to make sure that no, all of the depositors are going to get their money back, uh, whether it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars or even more. And so that can create even more risk that banks will take because look, the banks ultimately the taxpayer, the government, right, is going to be backstopping a lot of that, and and that means that they'll take more risk because they don't have the same amount of risk tolerance that they once did before. And what I think what it also shows is that a lot of the bigger banks are the ones that the government has said they're going to essentially bail out. So you're taking a lot of money from the smaller banks, the regional banks, and giving them to the bigger banks. So you kind of see a switch, a swap of where those dollars are going to be held based on what the government is telling you of what they're going to backstop and make sure that they basically bail out a lot of these bigger banks.
0: Some of the pros and cons of that backstop. Now what do Americans need to know right now? Do they need to be double checking their accounts, diversifying or watching out for scammers?
3: No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think that's something that we as Americans always should look at is diversifying our portfolio of assets, whether it be stocks, bonds, um, in this case deposits at, at different banks. I mean, look, the FDIC for a number of years now, uh, since the, f- the, the financial crisis, the Great Recession in the 2000s, um, has backstopped $250,000, insured up to $250,000 of your deposits. So if you have less than that, which most Americans have uh, well below two hundred fifty thousand dollars in deposits if you have more than that though then you should diversify put money in different places what we saw at Silicon Valley Bank though is some of these were small businesses a lot of tech for you know, technology firms that put you know millions of dollars into Silicon Valley Bank and so a lot of that was going to be lost that was going to be above that 250,000 FDIC insured amount on deposits and that's where you saw a lot of the hit that was going to take um, and look another thing we need to look at is a lot of the banking sector is doing a lot of the environmental social governance ESG which is doesn't have have good rates of return, and a lot of that's coming to bite them. Not only from the ESG sort of poor investments, like I would say, um, but also the amount of investments that they were, or, or amount that they had, the treasury securities, the debt from the government. Whenever those prices of those bonds went down, that decreased the value of their assets of these balance sheets of the of the banks, which created a lot of this banking crisis. Now,
0: Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting, you've given us a lot to think about. I appreciate it. Thank you. Washington State's Attorney General has recovered $35 million for consumers in a chicken price-fixing case. Fourteen of the 19 chicken producers named in the lawsuit paid the money to resolve claims against them. Attorney General Bob Ferguson's office is now working on a plan to distribute the funds. Ferguson filed the lawsuit in King County Superior Court in October 2021. A trial against the remaining companies is scheduled for October 2024. The Attorney General's office says all 19 chicken producers drove up the price of chicken since at least 2008, causing consumers to overpay by millions of dollars. Washington is the first state to hold chicken production companies accountable for the price-fixing scheme, although Alaska and New Mexico have also filed similar antitrust cases. Meanwhile, a new report says we are seeing a surge in small businesses shutting doors at a level not seen since 2020. What's behind that? Tune into our business news at 5 o'clock for more. The clock is ticking toward tax day, and if you haven't finished or started your federal return, you do get a few extra days this year. But if you're procrastinating because the process is daunting, there are still places to turn for last-minute help.
4: With April 15th falling on a Saturday and a District of Columbia holiday on Monday, April 17th, the deadline to file a federal tax return is April 18th this year, which gives people who haven't filed yet a little extra time to check their work.
5: Think about what went on in your life in the last year. Did you move? Did you have a child? Did you get married? Did you start a new job?
4: Tom O of the National Association of Tax Professionals says the current filing season is less complex than the pandemic years.
5: A lot of the things like the stimulus payments and the advanced child tax credits. We don't have those this year. Those existed in prior years. 2022 looks a lot more like 2019.
4: The IRS says the most common errors on returns include missing or inaccurate Social Security numbers, misspelled names and inaccurate figures for things like wages and income. They say math errors and incorrect calculations of tax credits and deductions can often be avoided by using tax preparation software. On Saturday, April 8th, the IRS will open many of its tax prep centers for weekend walk-in, in-person help. Some sites will offer specialized help on retirement and pension topics for taxpayers age 60 and above. And taxpayers recently impacted by severe weather in Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, California, and New York may have extended federal filing deadlines if they reside in declared disaster areas. Full eligibility details can be found at irs.gov.
0: An advocacy group says not so fast to a race-based paid internship program. It's calling on the Albany Public Library to change the conditions of the program, which was originally only open to black applicants. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more.
6: The Albany Public Library in New York has offered the internship since 2020. The online application form says the interns must be black recent library and information science graduates. Library Director Andrea Nicolay says the library profession isn't as racially diverse as it could be. She says the internship was established as a way to attract black librarians to the library. The Equal Protection Project of the Legal Insurrection Foundation responded with a cease and desist letter. It says that the program appears to violate a variety of state and federal civil rights laws. ON FOX NEWS, PROJECT PRESIDENT BILL JACOBSON POINTS OUT THAT THE 14TH AMENDMENT PROHIBITS DISCRIMINATION BASED ON RACE AND ETHNICITY. AND WE'RE SEEING THAT UNFORTUNATELY UNDER THE CONCEPT OF EQUITY THAT THERE IS OUTRIGHT DISCRIMINATION ON THE BASIS OF RACE. JACOBSON SAYS YOU HAVE TO TREAT PEOPLE EQUALLY AND WONDERED HOW PEOPLE WOULD REACT IF SOMEONE WERE TO POST A FELLOWSHIP AT A PUBLIC LIBRARY AND SAY IT'S ONLY OPEN TO WHITES. Former Black Lives Matter activist Xavier DeRosso called DEI policies a sham on Fox News. Because it tells black people and minorities that our skin color is a handicap and that we need to depend on them to hold white people out of the way in order for us to be successful. And Governor Ron DeSantis says the impact of DEI differs from the intention.
5: DEI stands for the way it's practiced division, exclusion, and
7: indoctrination.
6: But White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says such policies are a priority of the Biden administration.
8: When he came into office, he talked about the different crises that this country is dealing with, and one of them was racial equity.
6: The Times Union reported that library director Andrea Nicolay was surprised by the cease and desist letter. She says they are taking the letter seriously and that they want to confirm the internship is something they can keep supporting without violating the law. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Democratic Party firebrand Stacey Abrams has found a job at historically black college Howard University. The former Georgia gubernatorial candidate is taking on a race and politics role at the institution. It's a newly created role officially called the Ronald W. Walters Endowed Chair for Race and Black Politics. Howard University says the role requires Abrams to promote real-world solutions to societal problems that adversely affect African diaspora communities and other vulnerable populations. She'll do that through hosting a speaker's series to inspire research and encourage broad discussions. Abrams unsuccessfully ran for Georgia governor in 2018 and ran again in 2022 with the same outcome. She was also considered a possible running mate for 2020 Democratic Party presidential candidates. Abrams entered politics as a Georgia state representative in 2007 and served for over a decade in the Georgia House of Representatives. A judge in New York has ruled that the state's so-called red flag gun law is unconstitutional. Extreme risk protection order laws, as they're called, allow police to seize somebody's firearms temporarily. The court can order the confiscation based on a petition. The petition can be filed by a police officer, district attorney, family member, or school official. The basis of the petition is that the gun owner poses a risk or harm to themselves or others. Orange County Judge Craig Brown ruled that the wording of the New York's red flag law conflicts with another existing New York state law. That law says a doctor must testify that a person is suffering from a condition likely to result in serious harm if you want to suspend their rights. In Maryland, both a sheriff and a firearms dealer have been indicted in an alleged scheme to rent out machine guns. A federal grand jury accused Frederick County Sheriff Charles Jenkins and Robert Kropp on charges of conspiracy and false statements to acquire machine guns. Kropp owns firearms-related businesses in Frederick County, about 50 miles west of Baltimore. He's also charged with illegal possession of seven machine guns. According to a release from the Department of Justice, Kropp's businesses offered political support to Jenkins, who has been sheriff since 2006, and was reelected in 2022. As of Wednesday, Jenkins remains in his position as sheriff, according to a department spokesperson. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has repealed the state's abortion ban. The law from the 1930s made it a four-year felony to assist with an abortion unless it was to save the mother's life. The ban included rare cases of rape and incest. The 1973 Roe v. Wade decision rendered the ban null and void, However, it was effectively reinstated when that decision was overturned in June of last year. The Michigan House and Senate voted last month to repeal the ban. They then sent it to the governor's desk. The bill faced staunch opposition from the majority of Republicans. Whitmer, a Democrat, called the nearly 100-year-old ban extreme. She was joined by abortion access activists from Planned Parenthood and Emily's List at the bill signing. 150 Catholic priests and others from the Archdiocese of Baltimore sexually, assaulted, sexually abused over 600 children. That's what a long-awaited report from the Maryland Attorney General's office revealed yesterday. The abuse spanned 80 years, and the report accuses church leaders of decades of cover-ups. It says that they did not act to protect victims or stop the abuse. Some parishes, schools, and congregations even had more than one abuser at the same time. St. Mark Parish in Catonsville had 11 abusers living and working there between 1964 and 2004. One deacon admitted to molesting over 100 children. Baltimore Archbishop William Lori apologized to the victims. He says the report details a reprehensible time in the history of the Archdiocese. Maryland passed a bill on Wednesday to end a statute of limitations on lawsuits connected to abuse. It was sent to Governor Wes Moore, who has said he supports it. The Baltimore Archdiocese says it has paid over $13 million in connection with the abuse. The money went to care and compensation for over 300 abuse victims since the 1980s. Indiana and Idaho are taking a stance against irreversible sex change procedures on minors. The governors from those states signed bills into law on the matter this week. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed off yesterday. The law goes into effect July 1st. It will prohibit minors from accessing medication or surgeries that change their sex. Those currently taking such medications will have to stop by the end of the year. Doctors that violate the law will be disciplined by a licensing board. Idaho Governor Brad Little signed a bill Tuesday evening that criminalizes the procedures on minors. It takes effect in January next year. The new law will make it a felony to provide hormones, puberty blockers, or other sex change procedures to people under the age of 18. The ACLU is suing over the laws. And Kansas is banning transgender athletes from girls' and women's sports. Lawmakers in the state's House and Senate reached a two-thirds majority to override a veto by Governor Laura Kelly. The ban will apply from kindergarten to college. Kansas lawmakers are also pursuing laws to end sex change procedures for minors. That measure passed the state Senate on Tuesday. Governor Kelly is expected to veto it. At what age is transgender surgery appropriate? A Washington Examiner reporter asked the White House press secretary the president's stance. The answer caused a firestorm. Today, Indiana just uh, banned puberty blockers, hormone therapies, and gender transition surgeries for minors. I'm wondering what the president's reaction is to the Indiana governor signing that bill into law. And does the president have a position on at what age these kinds of therapies and surgeries are appropriate? That's
8: something for a, a child and, and their parents to decide. It's not something we believe uh, should be decided by, uh, by legislators. Uh, so I'll leave it there.
0: Some Twitter users responded in disbelief. Many felt it was inappropriate to let a child make such life-altering decisions. The host of OutKick podcast asked, then why not smokes and alcohol? About 85% of Americans think minors should be required to wait until they are adults to use cross-sex hormones and procedures, according to a survey by Trafalgar Group last October. Jean-Pierre was criticized last week for saying the transgender community is under attack days after a transgender shooter killed children and adults at a school. And coming up, a historic meeting between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the President of Taiwan. The Chinese regime pledges a strong response to the meeting. Italian drug money is being concealed via Chinese shadow banks. It's an increasing world problem. We'll have the details soon when we return. Good to have you back with us. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy welcomed Taiwanese President Tsai Ing wen for a historic meeting in California yesterday. The meeting took place despite threats from the Chinese regime. Here's the story Taiwan! Taiwan! Taiwan!
5: Taiwan! House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with Taiwan's President Tsai Ing wen at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California on Wednesday. McCarthy said they had a very productive discussion on ways to further the bonds between the U.S. and Taiwan.
1: We must continue the arms sales to Taiwan and make sure such sales reach Taiwan on a very timely basis. Second, we must strengthen our economic cooperation, particularly with trade and technology. Third, we must continue to promote our shared values on the world stage.
5: McCarthy is the most senior U.S. official to meet a Taiwanese leader on American soil since 1979. He said America's support for Taiwan will remain resolute, unwavering and bipartisan. A reporter asked him if he's worried the meeting will escalate tensions with the Chinese regime.
1: It is not our intention to escalate. We, we want to continue to be build
6: and foster democracy and freedom.
5: The Chinese regime claims Taiwan is part of its territory, despite having never controlled the island. Tsai mentioned her approach to Taiwan-China relations in her speech after the meeting.
6: In a discussion with congressional leaders this morning, I reiterated Taiwan's commitment to defending the peaceful status quo. I also highlighted a belief
8: which President Reagan champions that to preserve peace, we must be strong. A
5: bipartisan group of congressional members took part in the meeting, including Congressman Pete Aguilar, chair of the House Democratic Caucus.
2: I told President Tsai that the House Democrats will never abandon this relationship and will work hand in glove with the, bipartisan, with the Biden administration to affirm our commitment because we understand the unique role and vital role that Taiwan plays in the region.
5: The Chinese regime has pledged a sharp response to the meeting. When then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last August, the CCP responded with its largest live-fire drills in decades.
0: A NATO ally is ousting Chinese companies from upgrading a key port in Europe. That's after efforts from Washington and the EU. And NTD's Tiffany Meyer has the details.
8: Washington scoring a diplomacy win. The U.S. has persuaded a NATO ally to block Chinese companies from upgrading a key port in Europe. That ally is Croatia, a nation in Eastern Europe. It's part of NATO, the most powerful military alliance in the world. The port in question is called Rijeka. This deepwater seaport is a gateway to Central Europe. Three years ago, three Chinese state-owned companies won a bid to build a terminal for shipping containers there. The news set off alarms in Washington. That's because the U.S. Navy uses support for ship repairs. NATO also uses the port to move military goods out of Europe. If the port comes under Chinese control, it would make it harder for NATO and other countries to push goods and operations through the port. That's according to then U.S. Ambassador to Croatia. A report from the Wall Street Journal said officials from the U.S. and the EU weighed in on the issue. Afterwards, Croatia canceled the tender with the Chinese companies. The over $3 billion contract since went to a domestic company and a Danish shipping giant. The companies are expected to finish the upgrade's construction by 2025. But the deal hasn't completely wiped out Chinese influence. The container terminal is still buying cranes from a Chinese company. Ports use cranes to load and unload container ships. China controls the global seaport crane market. Back in the U.S., around 80 percent of the cranes operating in American ports were made in China. And concerns are rising that Beijing could use the sensors on these cranes to spy on what America is moving in and out of the
0: country. TV and movie lovers, beware. U.S.-based streaming service Hulu is reportedly pushing major staff cuts at its office in Beijing. People claiming to be impacted employees started sharing the news last week posting to multiple social media platforms that around 200 staff members were affected. That number equal to around 90% of the Beijing office's total staff. Here's the story.
8: The company does not offer streaming services inside China. Instead, the Beijing office offers tech support to the U.S. branch. It's also Hulu's second largest R&D center. Hulu has become a highly sought-after employer in China's cutthroat job market thanks to its reputation for positive company culture, compensation and worker benefits. Controlling shareholder Disney's recently announced cost-cutting measures are likely behind the layoffs. Hulu's severance package will reportedly be N plus 3. Chinese media says the founder of China's largest workplace real-name social platform revealed that the high-tech talents laid off by Hulu Beijing office are among the most sought after by other companies. The number of visits to their resumes increased by 12,000%.
0: Italian authorities say drug cartels operating in Italy are increasingly using Chinese shadow bank networks to conceal cross-border payments. Judicial and law enforcement officials say the money transfer networks are not easily traceable and allow for rapid payments. The transfer method involves depositing a sum with a money broker in one country while another agent somewhere else pays an equal amount to the intended recipient. Italian authorities have announced at least six investigations involving drug gangs and Chinese payment networks in the last five years. U.S. authorities say Chinese money brokers represent one of the most worrisome new threats in their war on drugs. It's become an issue for law enforcement in Europe as well. The European Union's police agency said Chinese criminal networks are more and more engaged in laundering criminal proceeds in Europe. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Just ahead, people in Argentina are dealing with skyrocketing inflation. We'll meet one man who demonstrates that when the going gets tough, the tough get going. A UK farmer is tearing up his apple orchards. He says grocers aren't paying nearly enough and he's losing money. More shortly here on NTD News Today. In France, protesters attacked a bistro in Paris known as a favorite of President Emmanuel Macron. Tensions escalated during a heavily policed street demonstration. The restaurant's awning was briefly set ablaze. A member of the restaurant attempted to extinguish the fire, which was then contained by police and firemen. French president previously celebrated the first round of the 2017 presidential elections at the Bistro. The protest is a continuation of the backlash against the president's pension changes that include raising the retirement age. Despite the widespread unrest, he says the changes are unnecessary to maintain the viability of the system. Other footage captured more of the chaos and standoff. A swarm of protesters gathered in the street, some throwing objects at police A group of policemen carrying riot shields marched through blasts and smoke bombs. French President Emmanuel Macron's controversial pension changes will mostly affect those approaching retirement age. But since the government decided to skip a parliamentary vote on the bill, French youth have joined the protests against the plan in growing numbers. Here's more.
9: Huge crowds have gathered in France in recent weeks to protest a controversial plan to raise the country's pension age by two years to 64. Some of the marches have turned violent. While the reform is most relevant to those approaching retirement, many young people are also taking to the streets. French youth have joined the protests in growing numbers since the government bypassed parliament to push the plans through. Every night for the past few weeks, 18-year-old Charles Schollecker has been making his voice heard.
10: Not just for his parents, but for himself. I'm against this reform simply because I have two parents who are killing themselves at work and damaging their health, and I don't want to see them die at work. My father, he works every day. He gets up to get on the tarmac at Charles de Gaulle Airport at 5 a.m. to load the planes. I find it difficult to imagine myself at 64, getting up at 3am.
9: Sholiaka has joined a group started by university students to organise unauthorised demonstrations, which are usually carried out in the evenings. While protesters have been seen torching bins and throwing rocks at police, Sholiaka insists he hasn't. Opinion polls show a wide majority of voters are opposed to the pension bill. They are further angered by Macron's leadership style and the government's decision to skip the parliamentary
8: vote.
10: For young people like me, we grew up with the hope of being able to influence our society. But when we see that decisions are made without consulting the people who make up this society, that takes away the possibility of being able to change things.
3: Possibility to to
10: the MANY
9: STUDENTS, LIKE SHOLIAKA, HAVE BEEN JOINING PRIVATE GROUPS ON SOCIAL MEDIA, WHICH HELP STUDENTS MOBILIZE FOR SPONTANEOUS PROTESTS. HE SAYS THEY HELP PREVENT THE GROUP BEING NOTICED BY POLICE. BUT DOES SHOLIAKA WORRY ABOUT THE REPERCUSSIONS, SHOULD THE DEMONSTRATIONS GET OUT OF HAND?
10: I WONDER ABOUT THAT, BECAUSE I KNOW WHAT CAN HAPPEN TO US TOO. WE SEE THE IMAGES AND WE SEE WHAT HAPPENS TO FELLOW PROTESTERS But that wouldn't prevent me from demonstrating, because I'm so outraged that it surpasses potentially endangering myself. Macron said that protests
9: will not stop the pension reform or other policy changes, while unions have called
0: for the continuation of nationwide strikes and protests. Extreme times call for extreme measures. With Argentina's soaring 100% inflation rate, some have been forced to take on multiple jobs to make ends meet. And today's Daniel Monahan brings us the story.
6: Meet Jorge Pedro Armoa. The 67-year-old has found a painful solution to Argentina's economic woes, juggling three jobs as a metalworker, soccer coach, and part-time salesman. The situation is complicated. Salaries are low, everything is expensive, so sometimes it's not enough. Armoa lives in a small home on the outskirts of the capital, Buenos Aires. He gets up early each day for his seven-day work week. He works hard to keep poverty at bay. Look, I try to put joy, feeling good, and being fine into every day of my life. Argentina is battling through a painful economic crisis. It affects almost four in 10 people in the South American country. Government handouts and subsidies have kept down levels of extreme poverty, but those may dry up as the state tries to dig its way out of a deep deficit, and the drought hitting farmers hasn't helped. Many of Argentina's nearly 46 million people are already unable to cover the basic cost of goods and services. Even with his three salaries and the income from his wife, a teaching assistant, Armoa often struggles to get by. Muy la veo. Muy with the issue of the prices of things, it's difficult to live. But according to Armoa, you have to put a positive face on things, put out good energy, and believe that tomorrow will be better. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Shortages on British supermarket shelves are shedding light on a crisis for producers. For some farmers, the supermarkets that they supply aren't paying enough. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on the produce problem.
11: Farmer James Smith can't make money from his apples anymore, so he's tearing down his orchards in the county of Kent.
7: Yeah, so this orchard is about 10 years old, and we are we're, we're taking it out um, because I can't I simply can't afford to spend any money on it so we're taking out 70 to 80 percent of our commercial orchards
11: for years Smith has struggled to turn a profit selling red apples to supermarkets for 2022's crop to break even he needed supermarkets to pay him 20 percent more than the previous year for a crate of apples supermarkets offered a price which was just 0.8 percent higher It was the final straw after years of losses.
7: I don't really want to get rid of all of my fruit, but I simply cannot see a way of overcoming all of the challenges of of growing, picking, storing the crop, only to know that our retailers in the U.K. largely refuse to pay us a viable price.
11: Supermarkets say they need to keep prices down for consumers amid a cost of living crisis but Smith says supermarkets don't pay enough. In Kent, Smith is removing 80% of his orchards. Last year, he took a loss of $186,000.
7: What we've seen in the last 18 months is this enormous rise in in all sorts of costs, be it interest rates, electricity, labor. And at the same time, we've seen a, a, a decrease in the amount of money we're paid by the retailers for our fruit.
11: Last harvests, Braeburn apples haven't been sold. A warehouse keeps them fresh.
7: Now our supermarket shelves are full of imported produce while our our fruit is still sat in cold stores, costing a huge amount of money because of the electricity we're using.
11: Smith is bringing pigs and chickens to inhabit the former orchards. He's also planting a vineyard and growing small amounts of cherries. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Thousands of UK vacationers could have their Easter plans disrupted. Ferry operators in the port of Dover are asking buses to reschedule some trips. The Kent port is a hub for trips crossing the English Channel. They said in a statement that this is a result of its urgent review after what it called horrible delays last weekend when some passengers waited as long as 12 hours. Good Friday is expected to be the busiest day of the Easter holiday weekend for buses embarking on cross-channel trips from the port. So the port is staggering access across the three-day period from Thursday to Saturday. They've also set up temporary border control infrastructure and drivers are advised not to arrive early so as to avoid unnecessary bottlenecks. Former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has been suffering from chronic blood cancer for some time and is currently in intensive care for a lung infection. That's according to a statement from his doctors today. The 86-year-old is a powerhouse in the country's politics, known for his blunt speech and many scandals. He was rushed to the intensive care unit of a hospital on Wednesday. His doctors said he'd been diagnosed in the past with leukemia, but did not say when it was first spotted. Though the former prime minister doesn't have a role in government, his Forza Italia party is part of Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's right-wing coalition. He has suffered repeated bouts of ill health in recent years and came out of the same hospital just last week after being treated for a few days. In Germany, a 29-year-old refugee from Syria has been elected the mayor of a village. He won over 55 percent of the vote in the very first ballot in Ostelheim, west of Stuttgart. Ostelheim
10: has set a clear signal. Ostelheim has also made history in this sense. It is also a strong signal for openness to the world, for tolerance. Um,
0: Tolerance, yeah. Ryan Alshebel came to Germany as an asylum seeker in 2015. He learned the language, completed an apprenticeship as an administrative assistant at the top of his class, and is now a German citizen. He said his parents were overjoyed at the news as they didn't think he would win. Alshebel said he would have a lot to do as a mayor to improve local child care, senior care, and basic services. He's probably the first mayor of Syrian origin in southwest Germany. Shebel stood as an independent candidate, although he is privately a member of the Green Party. And coming up, the latest on the conflict in Ukraine. Russia's Wagner forces say Kiev has not yet abandoned the eastern city of Bakhmut, and Russia's defense minister is touring the country's armed vehicle factories. Residents in Lviv learn more about their ancestors from the city's archives, The records detail place and date of birth, height, and even hair color and eye color. Stay tuned for that when we come back. Welcome back. Russian mercenary group Wagner says Ukraine isn't surrendering Bakhmut City. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky this week raised the prospect of pulling out of the city of Donetsk. The Wagner forces leader noted even if Kyiv gives up, they will need more support from the regular army before they can advance further. The Wagner group is leading the battle in the city, the bloodiest of the 13-month war. Moscow says winning the city will open up the battlefield and allow Russia to press further into eastern Ukraine. But Wagner Leader says they are still some distance away from that goal. He has blamed the military top brass for inefficiencies in recent months. Meanwhile, in Russia, the country's defense minister has wrapped up a tour of weapons factories. He visited a plant that produces artillery and aviation ammunition. The trip also included visits to assembly lines and workshops that produce modified armored vehicles. Among them, a new double-layer armor can withstand a blast from four pounds of TNT. A Swedish prosecutor said today that it remains unclear who was behind last year's Nord Stream pipeline explosion. The circumstances surrounding what he calls the sabotage are hard to investigate. The Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines connect Russia and Germany through the Baltic Sea. Multiple explosions last September caused four holes, which Swedish and Danish authorities have been investigating. Sweden's new statement confirmed that the explosions look like sabotage, but the prosecutor also said current speculation about the incident has no bearing on the probe. He noted that the investigation should build on the facts and analysis of the information available. Ukrainians are learning more about their ancestors from Lviv's archives, Despite the Russian invasion, interest in the records remains high. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on these past generations.
11: This is the Central State Historical Archive of Ukraine in Lviv. Here, Ukrainians can trace their ancestors back many generations. The records detail the place and date of birth, religion, height, even hair and eye color.
12: We have more than a hundred personal items in the historical archive of outstanding people, writers, composers. Among those documents, we can find what's known as personal documents. These can be birth certificates and extracts from metric books. The most interesting thing is the passports of those people.
11: This is the oldest record book preserved here.
12: This is a records book from the Greek Catholic parish from the village of Sudovy, Volodomir County. It dates back to the 1600s. As you can see, records were kept in church language without the use of graphs and according to the general chronology.
11: This statue in Lviv honors Andrei Sheptytsky. He was the Metropolitan Archbishop of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church until his death in 1944. A small part of the archbishop's personal belongings are now in the archives. Almost all of my
2: family history is here. It is very nice that it was preserved somewhere, despite the wars that took place. In the Second World War, the Russians came and robbed everything from Ukraine, from Lviv. And now I can see the letters of my grandfather's uncles. Very interesting.
11: Now these archives are more important than ever. Artemy Demid was killed on the front lines fighting the Russians. He was just 28 years old.
12: Here is Artemy Sahelsky, who was born in 1914 and died in 1985. So we named our first son Artemy in honor of his grandfather. Here's his photo. And here's a print of his hand Artemy Yulian. He was born on July 4th, on U.S. Independence Day, on George Washington Street in Lviv.
11: As Ukraine continues to fight off Russia, a new generation of soldiers, volunteers, and their families will become the latest addition to these historical archives. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Up next, locals in Rio de Janeiro flock to urban forests for a break from their busy lives. The natural landscape provides an escape from the heat and the hustle and bustle of the city, so stay tuned. Record levels of rain and snow have effectively ended California's three-year drought. Now, water is returning to its dying reservoirs. Eleven of the state's 17 major reservoirs are now above their historical averages. Some are so full that managers are releasing water to make room for possible melting snow. The three-year drought had drained the state's reservoirs to dangerously low levels, but the past few months have seen a parade of storms. They brought widespread flooding and dumped as much as 700 inches of snow in the Sierra Nevada. California
9: went from the three driest years on record to the three wettest weeks on record when we were catapulted into our rainy season in January of this year. So hydrologically, California is no longer in a drought, except for very small portions of the state near the northern part of the state, which just really missed this long line of storms.
0: The abundant precipitation has prompted Governor Gavin Newsom to lift certain water restrictions and no longer recommend a 15 percent voluntary cut in water uses but Newsom didn't declare the drought over. That's because water is still scarce near the California-Oregon border and in parts of Southern California. A rare tall flower is in full bloom at the New York Botanical Garden. For the first time in years, visitors are lining up to catch a glimpse of this special plant. I've actually never heard about this flower before. So, just the fact that, A, I've never heard about it, and this just grows in the wild somewhere. It's just so incredible. Like, nature's magical.
12: I think what was so impressive was the scale, is uh, when you walk up to it, you're like, okay, it's a flower. There's tons of orchids and things going on, and just seeing something so large is, it kind of takes your breath away.
0: And it's really impressive. <laughs> The plant has earned the nickname corpse flower. This comes from its odor that smells like rotten flesh. For pollination, the stench attracts insects that feed on dead animals. The flower blooms only once every 4 to 5 years for a very short period of only 1 to 2 days. It can grow up to 12 feet tall in its natural habitat and around 6 to 8 feet tall when cultivated. International travel is on the rise. AAA reports that airline bookings are up more than 200% compared to 2022. Europe and Canada are the most popular destinations, with Rome, Paris, Vancouver, and Dublin as hotspots. London in particular is seeing a 350% increase in travelers compared to last year. As a result, hotel bookings are on the rise, up more than 300% compared to 2022. Unfortunately, higher demand for flights means higher airfares, but it doesn't seem to be deterring travelers from going abroad. You know what this means. Buy your ticket early, or you know there are plenty of other options that are good destinations that aren't popular but are still very pretty. Urban forests in Rio de Janeiro have become popular with locals looking for a break from their busy lives. They bring people closer to nature and provide an escape from the heat. Entities and Andrew Thomas has the details on keeping calm and cool.
11: Tijuca National Forest and Pedro Branca State Park sit in the heart of Rio de Janeiro. For local residents, they offer an escape from the urban heat.
2: When you're inside the forest, you feel more human. You feel more like you belong in this world because you're walking. You hear the sound of water. You see nature. You see the animals, things we don't have in the urban areas.
11: Pedro Branca covers 30,000 acres. It's Brazil's largest urban forest. Tijuca is just about a third of the size. Alexandre Bastos-Luis leads his Tai Chi group among the wildlife. He's been coming here for more than 30 years.
2: When practicing Tai Chi Chuan, we aim to develop sensitivity to chi, which is vital energy, and whenever you practice, you refine your sensitivity. But when you practice in the forest, we become more sensitive.
11: After the session is done, Bostas Luis and his students can cool down under a waterfall. It is a recommended activity
2: for martial arts practitioners. When finishing training, hiking a forest trail and taking a waterfall shower.
12: It's a privilege in the middle of the city, a forest like this with many waterfalls. You get here quickly, enter this wonderful water and come out clean and renewed.
11: Singer Tati Vidal offers voice therapy she uses the forest as a place for concentration.
12: The idea is to use natural environments, the forest, as a tool for full attention, use that as a tool for connection, and have people relate with external and internal sounds.
11: Tropical forests act as sponges, holding humidity and keeping water fresh. And they provide the perfect escape from humid, stressful city life. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: In Utah, a woman has died after she pushed a young climber out of harm's way. A local county sheriff's office says an ice column fell on Sunday while a group of three people were attempting to climb Raven Falls near Indian Canyon. A 41 year old woman shoved the youngest climber away from the falling ice. The sheriff's office says she was then trapped underneath two huge blocks of ice and died. Meanwhile, the 21-year-old was able to climb down the mountain and call for help. The other member of their group, a 34-year-old man, fell about 40 feet when the ice came down. A helicopter was able to pull him from the mountain. He suffered serious injuries. His current condition is unknown at this time. A 55.22 carat ruby is poised to become the largest and most valuable gem of its kind ever to appear at auction. It should sell for over $30 million. The stone is set to go under the hammer in New York in June, less than a year after Canadian firm Fura Gems discovered it at one of the mines in East Africa's Mozambique. Announcing the sale Wednesday, Sotheby's described the jewel as exceedingly rare and the most valuable and important ruby ever to come to market. It's named the Estrella de Fura, an star or, or Star of the Fura in Mozambique's official language, Portuguese. The stone is expected to fetch in excess of $30 million, although record gemstone sales are dominated by diamonds, colored ones in particular. Rubies are also considered among the world's rarest and most valuable gemstones. The current auction record for a ruby was set by the Sunrise Ruby, a 25.59-carat stone found in Myanmar that fetched $30.3 million in Geneva, Switzerland in 2015. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.